You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's program, Father Paul demonstrates the importance of submitting to the order of the Hebrew canon in lieu of historicization. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. His task is finished, completed, fulfilled, Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, and God rests Shabbat from all his work twice for stress in two and three. It's amazing. I mean, you don't need to say it twice. You completed everything and he rested. But twice completed, were completed, and then he completed them. And then he rested. The rest on the seventh day which consists of not do, make, not asa, anything is clear from the parallel passage in Exodus 20, and that is very impressive, which picks up the same terminology. Let's listen to that. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. This is Exodus. In Deuteronomy, Chapter 5, it is linked with the Exodus. It's very funny. But in the book of Exodus, it is linked with the creation. It is unbelievable. One would expect that in the book of Exodus, it would be linked to the Exodus. But it is not so. So the first time you hear about this command, you hear it in these words, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, to the Lord, and in Hebrew is the same root. Shabbat means he rested, and Shabbat is the Sabbath. Again, for my hearer. Okay, in Arabic we translated, in this case, he rested, we use Sabbata, just to reflect the original. But the Arabic is a curiosity. The main thing is the original. But the seventh day is a Shabbat, to the Lord your God. Notice, it's the Shabbat. To the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. There you go. You, or your son, or your daughter, your manservant, or your maidservant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who is within your gates, for in six days the Lord made notice do any work and made is the same verb in Hebrew asa the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day which is Shabbat so your rest is a Shabbat to the Lord therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, which is exactly what he did 
at the beginning of Genesis 2. It's impressive, and hence the importance of this text. And in Hebrew, six days you will work, you will slave, and asita work, kol melakoteka. And this is the same word of melaka, the work of God that he used. Wayom hashabi'i. And the day, the seventh, you will not ta'ase, do, kol melaka. Okay, you notice the Hebrew. I want you to hear all your work, which is the same word in Hebrew. And then the reference is to the Genesis key because in six days, Asa, Yahweh, et hashamam et hataretz. And then he rested in, and here you have a change of verb, but it's interesting because it's the verb yanah from which we have nuah and menuha, in other words, the good rest. And he blessed it and hallowed it. My previous analysis of Genesis 1-1 through 2-4 shows that almost certainly it was conceived formally as a literary unit within the larger first literary chapter of Scripture, section of Scripture, which is Genesis 1 through 4. In the following, I shall take my time to discuss materially Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4 in detail and show beyond any doubt in my eyes, that both the vocabulary and the phraseology are expressly chosen and woven in a way that clearly militates for the thesis that I endorsed earlier, which is, you have the gist of the entire scripture already. In other words, this passage subsection functions as an opening statement by the authors which already sums up the entire message of scripture. The authors are bluntly saying to the educated and commoner alike, if you do not like what you hear in the original language that we have devised for this purpose and accept it, endorse it as it stands as a premise that the scripture Elohim right from the beginning Bereshit found it so it as very good for all slash everything that is humans, animals and the vegetation that ensures the livelihood of both, and rested his case fully and completely way before 
Ha'adam uttered a word, including his philosophical and assumedly scientific jargon. I insist to qualify it as jargon, since scientific as well as philosophical statements and even assertions keep changing over time. Before that, since Ha'adam does not say, utter anything until Genesis 2.19 when he starts naming his companions the animals, then there is no need for you to proceed reading. Do you like that, my hearers? I do. You don't, but it doesn't make any difference for Scripture. That's my premise, and the rest of my story is based on that. And all this discussion about what science said and philosophy and so on, and our latest experience in Minnesota and so on, doesn't help my case. I'm going to read it again for the sake of my hearers. This passage functions as an opening statement by the authors, which already sums up the entire message of Scripture. The authors are bluntly saying to the educated and commoner alike, if you do not like what you hear in the original language that we have devised for this purpose, and you accept that is, endorse it as it stands, as a premise that the scriptural Elohim, right from the beginning, Bereshit, found it in Hebrew, saw it as very good for all slash everything that is humans, animals, and the vegetation that ensures the livelihood of both, and rested his case fully and completely. That is the meaning of the verb kala from kol, totally. Way before Ha'adam uttered a word including his philosophical and assumedly scientific jargon, since Ha'adam does not say anything in scripture until Genesis 2.19 when he starts naming his companions the animals, then there is no need for you to proceed reading. And since there is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes, you will be bored to literal death through the non-ending repetitiveness of this Elohim, book in, book out, which repetitiveness culminates with your being taken on an unmerry-go-round going forward or at least somewhere of your choosing when in reality you are being tossed back and forth between Jerusalem and Babel, enjoying your delusions around a temple in Jerusalem and a tower in Babel, which are your handicraft according to Isaiah 66 and Genesis 11, and never entering in God's rest in the scriptural heavenly Zion, which is nothing else than the oasis Tadmor, the impregnable, the indomitable, that has been lying 
and still lies before your eyes at the heart of the Syrian wilderness. I say this time and again, I follow the Hebrew canon. It's not the story. There is no story the way we understand it. It's according to the Hebrew canon. In the Hebrew canon, it's very stunning, strange, that you have first Ezra and Nehemiah followed as the last two books of scripture with one and two chronicles. Now, if you read in your Bibles, obviously one and two chronicles cover roughly the same period as the book of Kings with also reference to Genesis. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, because these two happen after the exile. But in the Hebrew canon, we have Ezra, Nehemiah, then one, two chronicles. Okay. Now, I'm inviting you to notice the totality of these four books. You begin by reading Ezra 1.1. Again, the sequence in Hebrew is Ezra and Nehemiah that speak of a later period, and then one and two chronicles. In Ezra 1.1-3, you hear the following. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Okay? This, these are the first three verses of these four books taken together. Now, at the end of two chronicles, and I'm going to read it the way it is written in two chronicles, which is exactly verbatim what you just heard in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, and so on and so forth. And that's what I said to you, that should you decide to have it your way, you will be tossed back and forth between Babel and Jerusalem with absolutely no ending, as in unmerry go round. But if you historicize scripture, which I critique all the time, you're going to reshuffle these books and say this happened before and this happened after. But technically, the author already looked ahead at our merry-go-round and just conceived his scripture this way. Let me quote another text. Ecclesiastes 1, 9 through 11. 
what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun is there a thing of which it is said see this is new it has been already in the ages before us there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be a remembrance of later things yet to happen among those who come after and then psalm 95 i would like to hear this more intently than the previous text o come let us sing to the lord let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation let us come into his presence with thanksgiving let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise for the lord is a great god and a great king above all gods in his hand are the depths of the earth the heights of the mountains are his also the sea is his for he made it for his hands formed the dry land asher lo hayam wa hu asahu wa yabashit yadaw yatsaru okay yam is the sea asa is he made yabashit is like the yabasha the dry land of genesis 1 which his hands and he uses another verb which appears in genesis 2 yasar to mold you see the parallelism oh come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker osenu the one who asa nu us for he is our god and guess what and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand you have heard enough about the importance of the flock and the pasture okay very interesting son yado of his hand okay and this hand appears to verses earlier in the forming of the dry land So I want you to hear the parallels not just quote verses. So what he formed and this has come in my book on the rise of scripture that the Abasha the dry land we form is precisely the Eden of chapter 2 which is the Syrian wilderness oasis you know you're not talking about I don't know it eternal big and cosmos harden not your hearts as at meribah as on the day at massa in the wilderness notice the midbar when your fathers tested me and put me to the proof though they had seen my work pali it's enough those who know arabic understands that for 40 years i loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in heart and they do not regard my ways uh, which i already established in genesis 11 through 24 therefore i swore in my anger that they should not enter my rest and you have precisely this 
Menuha, the positive rest. And earlier I made that comment that this is precisely what we have in Exodus 20.11, the Menuha. And that is very important in view of the meaning of Nuah, Menuha. So Genesis 19.11 has a recollection of Genesis 2.2-4 via Exodus 29-11. Another example of if you do not know scripture in its totality, there is no way for you to make, you can make a commentary on Menuhai here, and you say, but it didn't appear in Genesis. But someone who knows Exodus 20 will show you that the link is there. And with this, let us turn to the detailed analysis of that magisterial intro that already sums up scripture. And here, my detail will be to flesh out my thesis that the vocabulary and the phraseology of these few verses control is the code for the rest of scripture. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.